a long ways so far. Uh, a lot has happened in just a few short chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, what we've seen is that God has begun uh, to use a small group of men to change the entire world. And we've seen that, that work begun here in Jerusalem. Okay, uh, The center of, of the Jewish faith, Jerusalem, where the temple resides. God is using a small group of men to preach the gospel, to teach about what Jesus Christ did through his death, burial, and resurrection. And people are getting saved. People are being set free. Uh, we had a young man just today. Uh, I got to pray with the young man. He, he, had, he had to leave Larry, who accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior today. So, so what was begun 2,000 years ago with these 12 men, okay, and these disciples has continued on, hasn't it? Praise God. And so what we're seeing is the very beginning of that work and the beginning of the church being formed and the beginning of God's mighty hand in this world using the message of his son Jesus Christ to set captives free. And uh, so we've come, you know, I'm not going to recap everything. You can go back and listen. But um, what's happened here is we have a man named Stephen. He's a deacon in the church uh, who God has been using mightily uh, to contest the naysayers who are um, speaking against the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a, a religious sect of, of people, uh, Jewish believers, who are renouncing the message of the gospel. We, we refer to them as the Sanhedrin or the Sadducees. There's several different groups of people involved here. But the Sanhedrin are the religious order. They're the ones who oversee the political and customary traditions of the temple. And they have a lot of power. A lot of power. And they're beginning to, to, to yield it and wield it uh, to contest the message of the gospel. And, and so here we have Stephen, a very humble man, okay? Uh, uh, a man with a great countenance, with, with great wisdom, who is standing in opposition to them. And at the very beginning of the chapter, if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, you see the high priests engage him. And they ask him, uh, after saying, hey, have you been speaking ill of Moses? Have you been speaking ill of the temple? Have you been speaking ill of the religious order? And they say to him, are these things so? And he goes into a message. He begins preaching a message that involves the, the, the patriarchs of old, the, the men of the Old Testament whom the Jews claim to revere the very, very most. And he uses their story and he uses their narrative to paint a picture of how, of how they, over time, have continued to miss the truth of who God really is. Okay? And so, just by, by way of review, they start by telling the story of Abraham. Now, what the significance of Abraham in, in, in Stephen's story is this. Is that Stephen is telling them, look, once upon a time, our fathers worshipped. And they were strangers in a foreign land. And they worshipped without a temple, without a priestly order. There was a man named Abraham, and he worshipped God. And they had a relationship, and they were friends. And God is doing that again. In other words, what he's advocating for is a relationship with God versus a religious, customary, traditional perspective on who God is. You know, when I was speaking with Larry... Uh, we, he came forward, and, and the first thing he said was, I'm, I'm looking for an opportunity to be religious. That's what he told me. I mean, this was 25 minutes ago. He came forward, and he said to me, I'm looking for an opportunity to be religious. I want to follow God. 
In 2,000 years, not a whole lot has changed, has it? What people think that they're looking for is a religion. What people think they're looking for is a system to be a part of. What they think they're looking for is an advocate through man to access God and to find favor with God. And I had to let him down. I don't have the answer for religion. I had to let him know that, look, man, I don't know what to tell you about the religious thing. But what I can tell you is that you can know God face to face. I had to let him down lightly. Actually, he wasn't real sad about that statement. (laughs) I told him that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he could know He could know that he was the friend of God just the way Abraham knew that he was a friend to God. Now, Joseph, the story changes a little bit. So, so with Abraham, you know, the interesting thing about Abraham is that in Abraham, they, the, 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 the Jewish order would have recognized the, uh, their identity in Abraham as a, the father of the nation. Okay, right? But in Joseph, they recognize themselves as their cultural identity, okay? In other words, between Jacob and Joseph and his brothers are the 12 tribes. And and Joseph was the first of the rejected, the first of the oppressed Israelites. He was the very first. And they saw themselves in his identity. They saw themselves, the nation of Israel saw themselves as the rejected people in the world. And they, and they tied their identity to Joseph, and it would have sparked their attention when Stephen started talking to them about Joseph. But, but his message to them about Joseph was this. One man's rejection, okay, one, man, one man's rejection is another man's revival. And that was the message that we preached. Is that though Joseph was rejected by his brothers, though he was rejected by the patriarchs, Though he was rejected by many would say by the religious order, he brought salvation to the Gentiles. And you can go back and listen to that message too. He brought salvation to the Gentiles and he brought a redemption to the nation of Israel. And this is what Jesus did. So you see what Stephen's doing is he's painting a picture of who Jesus Christ is. He's telling them that just as Joseph was rejected, Jesus was rejected. And just as Joseph brought salvation to the Gentiles and the Jews, so shall Jesus bring salvation to the Gentiles and one day in a future time to the Jews as well. You see what's going on here? And, and, And the Sanhedrin are being forced to recognize what he's saying. The picture that he's painting is actually condemning them in their hearts. It's a message that is penetrating to them. And now he's about to preach about Moses. And Moses is the father, is the father of their tradition and their culture and their law. And he's the beginning. He's the beginning of their law. He's the beginning of the religious system that they claim to hold so dear to. And he is the one that they're accusing Stephen of blaspheming. They believe that Stephen is blaspheming what Moses did. And they believe that Stephen is blaspheming the worship of the te- in the temple. Okay? And so we're going to talk about the, that today. Are you ready? Yeah. I don't think I'm ready. I'm a little tongue-tied. We got, I think it's something like 50 verses to cover today. And so you need to pray for me. Let's pray right now. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for these people. I thank you so much for these young people who have decided, even if they decided just for the first time this morning, that they're going to come and they're going to hear about your word, Lord, I'm so thankful for that. 
Some of, some of these young people, day after day, year after year, they have said to themselves, I will follow you. And God, I am grateful for that. And Lord, I, I pray with all my heart that your word would continue to penetrate us this morning. And that we, would, that we would see it for the value that it holds. And we would see it as the thing and the catalyst for our lives. So that every single day we would find ourselves in relationship with you, in your word, desperate, desperate. To live out the gospel and to preach the same way that, that Stephen is preaching here. Yes. With boldness, with fearlessness, with joy on our faces. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the story of Moses. The story of the father of the Jewish faith. So Stephen is going to use the story of Moses as an argument for their faith, their need to follow Jesus Christ. Okay, so you ready to do this? Verse 15 of chapter 7 says, So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers. Okay, that means Jacob and his sons, they lived in Egypt, they died, and their heritage continued on. And we were carried over into Sechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham uh, bought for a sum of money of the sons of Amor, the father of Sichem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, okay, so the promises that God had made to Abraham, we already read about that, those things are coming nigh, they're coming to pass. In other words, there was a prophecy to Abraham that your people would go into slavery, that they would sp spend a season of their lives in slavery, in bondage, okay? And that's, that's getting ready to happen here. So listen, when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people uh, grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. Okay, so what's going on here? Okay, some time passes and a new pharaoh uh, rises up in Egypt. And it's his responsibility to look out and assess the situation of Egypt. And he says to himself, look. I'm afraid that there are too many Israelites. There's too many Jewish people. Okay? And I don't know what to do about that. Because if things continue the way that they're going, the Israelites will outnumber the Egyptians, and we will be overrun, and our power will be in danger. And, and not to mention, our economy is booming. And we have a lot of work that needs to get done that's not getting done. So he puts together a strategy that says the following. We will first and foremost, we will kill every firstborn Israelite in order to suppress this growth in their populace. Okay? We will kill every firstborn male, and we will make sure that, sure that there's a generation that's stunted in their ability to outgrow or outpace the Egyptian population. You understand? Okay? The other thing that he decides to do is to put the Egyptians into slavery. So the work can get done. And so this is what he does. This is his plan. Okay, now look at verse 20. In which time Moses was born an exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. A lot's left out here. Okay, this is a summary. Stephen is taking for granted that these Jewish men, the Sanhedrin, 
would understand this narrative and that they could fill in the gaps. You understand? And so there's a lot that's left out here. You can go back to, uh, to Exodus and you can read from the very beginning and you can read this story. All right? Now listen, this is what's important to note here is that Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's house. And he was raised up. Now listen to me. Egypt, we know this, many of us know this, many of us don't. Egypt is a picture of sinful and, and, and worldly living. Okay? Egypt is a picture of bondage. It is, it, Egypt is a picture to us as New Testament believers of what it means to live in bondage to sin. And he's raised up in the worldliness of that. He, is, he has been taught in all the ways of the Egyptians. He knows the culture well. He's, been, he's, he's smart. He's an intellectual. He's been given everything that is afforded to him by living in the king's palace. And yet something is not right. Something in his heart is not quite right. In every way, Moses should, should be happy. In every way, Moses should be content with his circumstances. But something isn't right. He found a conviction, a greater conviction in his heart. And you know what? This is a picture for us, okay? This is a picture for us. There's some of us in this room right now. Your, your situation, comparatively, especially on a world scale, living here in Kansas City, being a college student, you are being brought up, you are learned, you're, you're, you're well provided for, and you know what? You know in your heart of hearts that something is not quite right. In every regard, you would think to yourself, I've got it good. I'm privileged. And yet the worldliness of your living has not brought satisfaction. There are people in this room right now, just like Moses, who on paper should be very, very happy with their lives. And yet, and yet, you still recognize that in your heart you're still depressed. That the satisfaction has not quite come. That pleasure might last for an evening. But day to day, something's not quite right. And the conviction is there. And you know you need something more. And so this is the situation that we find uh, Moses in. He knows that there's something more to his life. He knows that there is something bigger. And he looks out upon his people and he's distressed. Look at verse 23. We're going to look for a moment here on Moses' heart. And when he was full, 40 years old, that's older than me. You know what I mean? And when he was full 40 years old, I mean, his life is basically over, right? No, he's just getting, this dude's just getting started. Okay, he's just getting started. That gives me hope. It came into his heart, listen, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. This is where Moses' zeal was born. This is where his zeal was born. Now, let's pause here for a second. First of all, I want to say, Moses is a fantastic picture of Jesus Christ. Hey, look at this. It came into his heart to deliver his people. The same thing happened in Jesus. You know, eternity past was a life of goodness for him. He had it good, a perfect relationship with the triune Godhead. 
He was in it, and it was good. He sat on a throne. Okay, now listen. He gave that up because it came into his heart to do so. He gave it all up. It's a beautiful picture. Okay, now this is, this is what we have to get at. Where does zeal come from? Zeal is a very important thing in Scripture. Where does zeal come from? Key point number one. Zeal is born when the heart discovers its true purpose and is called into action. That is how zeal is born. Zeal is born when the heart recognizes that something isn't quite right. There is a need in the world, and I have no choice but to go and to meet that need head on. That's how zeal is born. Zeal is born when the heart discovers its true purpose and is called into action. For Moses, it was when he saw his people needed deliverance from wickedness, from the oppressive hand of the Egyptians. For Jesus, it was when he saw his, the, his people's need for deliverance to be saved from their sin. Now listen to me. For us, zeal is born. For the New Testament Christian, zeal is born when we truly see that people need a Savior. That is where zeal is born. Now listen, even in Moses' uh, moment of weakness, now he did the wrong thing, didn't he? Let's acknowledge that right now. Moses, his solution was, was to, to handle things in his flesh. And so he, he stepped in when he, when he saw his brother being oppressed by an Egyptian, and he killed the Egyptian, and that was wrong, that was murder. Okay, it wasn't right. It wasn't right. He took the wrong approach. His zeal was out of control. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But listen, this is the point I want to make. His heart was right. Listen, verse 23. It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Moses' identity was determined first, not in the mind, but in the heart. Not in the mind, but in the heart. You know, heart is a very important thing uh, to, to having Christ-like character. Heart is very significant. We... We read the Bible and we recognize this. Let's, let's, let's point this out. I've, I've probably mentioned this before. We give the heart a hard time, okay? Because we know that the heart is deceitfully wicked, right? Where the heart is, passions are. And passions don't always lead us the right direction, okay? This is why we have the, the term, get in our fields. When we get into our fields, we could go anywhere, couldn't we? We could wander off in any sort of direction because what it does is it blinds us. Our feelings and our emotions can blind us. But the Bible also talks about how great the heart can be. It talks about the potential of the heart. Because when the heart is yielded to God and Christ-like things, the heart is actually a very powerful thing. And, and, and to be honest, if we were to be honest, when we accepted Jesus Christ, that was more an issue of the heart than it was even the mind. What happened was we acknowledged in our mind that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. But just as Larry did about 30 or 40 minutes now ago, what happened was Larry recognized in his heart something wasn't right. The conviction didn't come to his mind, it came to his heart. And heart is of great, great significance to any person who is going to choose to follow Jesus Christ. Now, here's the question. Are we as Moses? Are we as Christ? Is your heart so heavy for the lost that you are willing to sacrifice everything to be full of that kind of faith? And now I want to point to our need for zeal. In Kaya, in MBT, and in Christian living, we need zeal. We need a zealous heart. 
It's, it's, it's of such great need. And you know what? To be honest with you, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I believe, as the pastor of Kaya, now, now people from outside of Kaya look in and they say, wow, look at all that zeal. Now, I'll say this. That to be honest with you, when I look at Kaya, I actually believe that, that there, there is a, a void as it concerns zeal. I think there's something missing in terms of zeal. In terms of passion. Now, we might have convinced ourselves along the way that because we don't look like the rest of the Laodicean church, that we don't look like the lukewarm church, we somehow have ourselves convinced that we are passionate people. But the truth is, if we're comparing ourselves to the worldly church, okay, yeah, we're looking pretty good. But listen to me. We need to be comparing ourselves to the one true bride of Christ. And when we look at the story of Acts, and we look at the zeal of the men in this book, we must recognize that we woefully fall short. We ain't there. And when I look for men and women who are leaders in this ministry, I'm telling you right now, I am first looking for zeal. I am looking for people of passion. I would much rather train a zealous man to be tempered than to teach a learned man or a religious man how to have passion. And I'll say this, it's almost impossible to do. One cannot intellectualize themselves into missional living. You cannot do it. You can read until your eyes are hurting. You can sit through as many lectures as are possible. You can get as many degrees as are necessary, and you still will not be guaranteed to be a zealous man or woman for God. You cannot teach yourself into missional living. Key point number two, it is easier to bridle a zealous heart than it is to unleash the zeal of a religious heart. It is easier, and I say this from experience. I might, I might be 36 year old, I, I, years old. I might not know a whole lot, but in the time that I've spent training young men, I can tell you for a fact, it is easier to teach a young man or a young woman the word of God, that they might be tempered in their spirit, that they might be bridled in the way that they live. If they first have zeal, it is, it is in many regards Boy, it's a, it's a crapshoot when you're working in the reverse. It is hard. <clears throat> now listen to me. A zealous heart for God must be bridled. Or it can easily become, become unruly. If zeal is left undone, it can be utterly destructive. And the, the, to me, the most, the, the most foremost example of this is Judas himself. Judas was a man of zeal. He was a man of passion, so much passion that he betrayed Jesus Christ for his agenda. Judas had an agenda. He had a political plan. And he had a zealous heart. And he betrayed Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. A, a, a zealous heart must be bridled. It has to be. But listen. But if it is tempered, 
If it's tempered by knowledge, then watch out. God can use the zeal of a man to accomplish amazing things. And Moses is our example of that. You know, it took 40 years for God to bridle the heart of Moses. Did you know that? Like, if you know the story, and we'll get to it here in a second, Moses spent 40 more years in the wilderness tending a flock in the quiet of the field. And that is what God used to bridle his heart, to temper his passions. But oh, when he did, But when he did, Moses was used to change the world. You know, 2 Peter chapter 1, we should know this real well. Thank you, Alex. We should know this well. 2 Peter chapter 1 teaches us that faith and virtue ought to come before knowledge. Read with me. Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Oh, well, I want that. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I want, to escape the, I want to escape that corruption. Give me that. I want that. Listen, this is how it's done. This is the prescribed method. This is the godly method of doing that. You begin, you begin giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Now listen to me. You add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge. Check the order there. There are many people in this world who begin with religious training from a small child. They sit in a pew somewhere. And what they do is they don't even know it. But they are cultural Christians. They're being brought up as cultural Christians. And I, listen, this is, this is arbitrary, but according to Brandon Briscoe's estimations, I would bet that somewhere around 99% of all Christians are cultural Christians. Whether they're saved or not saved, whether they, regardless of denomination, I'm talking about the whole of Christianity is primarily a cultural phenomenon in 2019. And the problem with that is that these people began with some form or other of religious knowledge. And they didn't start with faith. And they didn't start with virtue. And so their zeal is all jacked up. When knowledge comes before faith and virtue, then you are in danger of religion and coldness of heart. Now listen to me, I'm going to tell you, it's not impossible, but it's very, very hard to break that religious bondage to find a mission somewhere in that heart, it's hard to do. So let me explain it this way. Paul was a religious man. Saul, Saul, right? We'll read about him later on in this book. Saul, the future apostle Paul, he was a very religious man, wasn't he? You know what it took to break his heart and get him to have the right zeal? You know what it took to work him backwards on that thing? Blindness. Meeting Jesus Christ face to face and hearing, hearing God himself say, why do you kick against the pricks? Why are you working against me? Now, I, I'm going to guess that not many of us are going to experience that. Not many of us who have cold hearts or religious mindsets are going to have an opportunity to see Jesus Christ face to face. He's probably not going to blind us. But that's what it took for Paul. 
took three years of training in Damascus without ever having gone and visited with the other apostles and telling them what had happened. He hid in a quiet place and trained his heart to work backwards from knowledge. I'm telling you, it's not an easy thing to do. Is it possible? Yes. Some of you are doing that. Some of you in this ministry right now are working beyond. You grew up with knowledge. You grew up in a religious setting. You grew up with parents who loved you. You grew up in a church, and you had a religious idea of what it meant to follow God. And you know what? You recognize now that it's wrong. It wasn't right. I had a wrong perspective. Now I know who Jesus Christ is, and I'm working backwards to get that zeal, to get that idea of the Great Commission, to get that planted into my heart. And then I'll move forward in knowledge. Some of you are doing that. But I'm telling you, it's hard. And I, personally, I would rather have someone that begins with zeal that I can work towards knowledge. Amen? So here's my advice. To those who love knowledge, yet find themselves not fully committed to evangelism. Did you hear how I phrased that? Because zeal, zeal means you have the heart of Moses and you have the heart of Christ and you, you want to share the gospel because your heart is towards delivering people from bondage. You understand? That's what zeal is. So listen to me. If you know you have a love for knowledge, yet you find yourselves not fully committed to evangelism, then your job is to retrace your steps and go back and fall in love with John chapter 1 and work your way through that book and find yourself once again in the peace and the knowledge and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you can fix that thing. Then you can fix that thing. You know, we think, man, guys, listen to me. I think as Kyle, we've, we've convinced ourselves that we're real evangelical. I'm telling you right now, we're not. We're not evangelical. There are people in this room who didn't preach the gospel. And I'm, I'm going to say this. That's freaking shameful. You didn't, you, you mean you had the cure to cancer and you didn't give it to anybody this week? Freaking mind-blowingly shameful. You had the answer. You held the keys to eternal life. And you didn't offer that to anybody this week? You've got a problem with zeal, my friend. And it is time to work backwards to the gospel and to regain Christ's heart for deliverance. My advice, listen to me, I'm not done with advice. i got more advice. My advice to those of you who are full of passion, yet find yourselves emotionally up and down, because you know what? Zeal, unbridled, that's what happens. I'm excited for Jesus one day, but something bad happens, and I feel bad about it, and I dip down, and Christ is far from me. Where is, where is, where is God? I see him nowhere. That's the problem with unbridled zeal. Now, if that's your issue, if you know that you have zeal and you desire Christ, but you feel like things just keep getting in the way and slowing you down, you're lacking focus. You don't see the objective. And you need to establish your steps through consistency in ministry and learning. You need discipline. You need discipline. And in our church, that looks like discipleship, biblical discipleship. Someone mentoring you and training you in God's word so you can work through all of that <coughs> young person stuff, young believer stuff, zealous stuff, work through it. Get beyond that. They're going to help you to slough that stuff off and to find your maturity. 
D2 will help you do that. LFBI will help you do that. Blueprints will help you do that. Bible studies will help you do, help you do that. You, that's what you need. And you need to, for knowledge to be added to your faith and your virtue. I haven't got very far, so pray for me. Yeah, I actually have a leaders meeting in about 25 minutes. So, all right, let's look at the identity of Moses. So we talked about the heart of Moses. Let's look at the identity of Moses. So powerful here. This, is, this story, this part of the story is so good. For he supposed his brethren would have understood, this is after he kills the Egyptian man. Okay? He wanted Israel to just say, yeah, man, good job. Will you lead us? This is what he's looking for. He wants to deliver his people, and he expects them to just adopt him immediately. That's not how it worked. It didn't work that way. In fact, his people rejected him. They rejected him. For he supposed his brother would, uh, brethren would have understood how that, that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one, uh, at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren. Why do ye wrong one to another? He sees two, in this case, he sees two Israelites fighting with one another. He's like, what are you doing, guys? Cut that out. That ain't cool. And you know what they say? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Uh-oh. Someone got found out. Now listen to me. The first thing we understand here doctrinally is that Stephen is making a bold allusion to Christ right here. He's telling the Sanhedrin, Look, they rejected Moses. You rejected Christ. What's the difference? You just did that. You rejected your deliverer. You know, the one that you waited on for about 4,000 years, you looked him in his face and you said, we don't want any part of you. They just did that. Moses was originally rejected for his zeal. He was the very one that God wanted to use to deliver his people, and yet he was refused. But listen, Here's what's important, and this is what we're going to understand here. But he was accepted by God, and that's all that counted. The only thing that counted was that he be accepted in God's eyes. That's it. Verse 29. Then fled Moses at the saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he, be, uh, he begat two sons. And when 40 years were expired... There appeared to him in the wilderness of, of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame uh, of fire in a bush. You guys remember that story? When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and he drew near to behold, uh, to behold it. The voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled, and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is, a, is holy ground. I have seen... I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom, that, uh, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of an angel, which appeared to him in the bush. Okay, key point number three. 
the tide of public opinion should hold no significance to the one who is confident in their calling. In other words, Moses could throw a fit and say, well, they don't want me. In fact, he did. We'll get to that. They don't want me. But let, let me point something out to you. To God, that doesn't matter. Who are the people in your life, Christian? Radical Christian, zealous believer. Who are the people in your life that have rejected you? I mean, some of us let that weigh on our, our conscience from, from day to day. It messes us up. Gets us down. Gets us down. Gets us bogged down. Gets us depressed. Gets us in our feels. But listen, who has God called you to be? How does God acknowledge you? What is your identity in him? Moses meets God in the wilderness, in a theophany of a burning bush, and in the presence of, an angel, of the angel of the Lord. In this encounter, God tells Moses who he truly is. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning. He sees it, God sees it, and he hears it. Did you know God sees and hears your circumstances? He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on. And have come down to deliver them, and now, and now come, and I will send thee into Egypt. Moses initially struggles with his identity. Okay, now listen, I don't have time. I was going to read you Exodus chapter 3. But I'm going to, I'm going to briefly go through it. I want, you to point, I want to point out to you all the things that God says to him and how he responds. Okay, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but listen to me closely. God has come to Moses in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is present, and the command is coming. Listen, so it says in verse 6 of, of chapter 3, he says, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He identifies himself. Verse 7, he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have seen it. Verse 8, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of, of the Egyptians. I, God saying, I, 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 me, 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 me. I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jump further down. The cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. Verse 11, who am I? Moses responds, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. There's the doubt. Who am I? Wait, 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 wait. That's not important, Moses. That's the part that's not important. Listen, I just got done saying, I, 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 me, 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 the creator of the universe is talking to you right now. I am going to do this thing. I am going to be the power in your life. I am going to do it. I see it. And the only reason we're teaming up is because we have the same heart. Let me just get that through to you, Moses. <laughs> We share this heart issue where we want to see our people delivered. And so we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you on the team. But I'm in charge. Yeah. I feel like this is what LeBron James does. <laughs> okay, so he's telling him, look, I, and, and Moses, Moses be like, who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel, of Egypt? And listen, verse 12, he says, this is God speaking, certainly I will be with thee. Verse 14, 
And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Identity problem fixed. Identity problem fixed. Fear and doubt resolved. Anxiety subsided. Peace overcomes. Moses came to realize that he didn't have to care about what the nation of Israel thought about him. He didn't have to care about what Pharaoh thought about him. He only had to know that God was with him. That's all he had to know. And the next thing you know, he's back in Egypt doing his thing. Doing exactly what God called him to do. Verse 36. This is confirmed in the miracles. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So God begins to use Moses. Now listen to me. I want to point something out to you. Doctrinally, we have to be aware. We have to be aware of the doctrine here. What's happening here is he's reminding. Stephen is reminding the Sanhedrin, look, Jesus did miracles in front of you, too, didn't he? He confirmed his power, too, didn't he? What, what's the problem? Why is this so disjointed? Listen, just like Moses did the wonders in the wilderness, just like he was used in the plagues in Pharaoh's house, just like that, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, came right to you, right to your door, and worked wonders and miracles, and yet you reject him, just like those people did way back when. Now look at the heart of the religious. Okay, this is, Stephen is going to use this, and this is where he, he's, the knife is in, and now he's turning it. Okay? He's going for it. Verse 37, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye, de- uh, him shall ye hear. This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses uh, 15 through 19. If you want to write that down, Bible study student. Okay. What happened here is Moses prophesied of Jesus. And he's, t- he's reminding them of that right here. Okay. Turning the knife. Turning it. Remember, Moses, this is the one who told you that that the Messiah was coming. He's the one who spoke of the prophet that you just crucified. Remember that? Verse 38, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us to whom our fathers would not obey but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. They saw Moses for who he was and what God was using him to do. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. Saying unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For as for, for, for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we what not what has become of him. You can go back and read that story. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. And it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have you offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God um, Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." See, the Sanhedrin, they accused Stephen of speaking against the sacred law of Moses, didn't they? 
freaking idiots. They accused him. They accused him. But the history of Israel revealed that the nation had repeatedly broken the law that God had given them over and over and over again. Moses presented the nation of Israel with the law of God, and before he could even turn around twice, they had already broken the first two commands. Shameful. Wicked. Wicked people. The Jews worshipped idols in Egypt, and when they were delivered from that, they chose to go back to it, and they settled in the promised land. They get to the promised land. They get to Canaan. God has given them the, the promised place. And what do they do there? They gradually adopted the gods of the pagan nations around them. They brought them in. Now listen to me. It wasn't, it wasn't until God carried them out of their land and into Babylon and into captivity and into slavery once again that they chose to no longer serve the pagan gods. So Stephen is basically accusing them of practicing a form of worship, the act of sacrifice, but all the while they worshiped false gods in their heart. Key point number four. The truth of worship is always realized in the invisible posture of one's heart. The nation of Israel, they pretended like they worshipped God. Every single day, they made sacrifice. And yet, every time they made sacrifice to God, secretly in their heart, they worshipped false idols. This is what they were doing in the first century in the temple. This is what the world does today. This is what religion is today in our world. This is what we do. We replace God in our hearts and we worship things. Oh, well, no. What are you talking about? No, 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 no. Listen to me. Every time you have an opportunity to read God's word, you fish around on your phone. And you know it. You go pursue false idols. Every time you go to pick up your phone, listen to me. The last seven years of Western civilization and the use of technology has been so oppositionary to the gospel that I don't, tr- I don't believe we have truly entered into Laodicea until now. Now. We have, sh- we have shored up the foundation of Laodicea because of your personal obsessions with everything else but God. Every time you have an opportunity to go and meet with the creator of the world face to face, you somehow find yourself somewhere else. If I'm lying, tell me. There's not a person in this room who doesn't struggle with that. Tell me I'm lying. You you say that you worship God. Do you worship him in the invisible places of your heart? Listen to Stephen. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witnesses in the wilderness. And he, he appointed speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. 
which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers under the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all these things? See, look, the Sanhedrin had accused Stephen of seeking to destroy the temple, seeking to destroy the religious order. But that was exactly what the Jewish leaders had already done. In Moses' tabernacle, God's glory graciously dwelt in the Holy of Holies, Exodus chapter 40. In Solomon's temple, God's glory was, was present, 1 Kings chapter 8. But listen to me. But over the years, the worship in the temple uh, degenerated into mere religious formality, and idols made their way into the temple. They had turned their temple into a den of thieves. Did, did you guys forget that Jesus went into the temple with a whip? Because they had made his house a den of thieves? It is only the religious man who cares so little for the things of God that he exploits the church for his own gain. I'm talking about religious people now. Do you hear me? Only a religious man cares so little for the things of God that he uses the church and he leverages the church for his own gain. It is only the religious man who confines God to the pew or to the sanctuary a tidy, neat compartmentalization. I put God here. I put God here. It is only the religious man who confines God to traditions, activities, and formality, prohibiting his power from spilling over into every aspect of their life, every prayer and devotion, every word and deed, every relationship and passive encounter must belong to God, the creator of all things, the deliverer of your soul. In their weak religious thinking, they had established a temple with customs and authoritarian hierarchy that ultimately robbed God of his glory and denied him the one thing he wanted, a relationship with his creation. That's what they did. And now the knife gets turned all the way. Verse 51. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Ye stiff-necked. You know what a stiff neck can't do? Bow and worship. That's what a stiff neck can't do. Ye stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. Just as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have, have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been, now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it yourselves. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 5 says that in the end times people will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. 
in a pluralistic society like our own, it would not be incredibly uncommon for there to be people who said that they were Christians, people sitting in this room right now, I am a Christian, but when it came down to it, have complete doubt in God's word. You doubt the very punctuation of God's word. You find every opportunity to say, but yeah, but, 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 a form of godliness, but no power. Are you like the Sanhedrin? Are you someone who has spent your life espousing a perspective without actually ever knowing God and thriving in his presence? Has your Christian life so mirrored the lost world that people couldn't distinguish between you and non-Christians? It is this sort, when confronted with the radical truth of the gospel, that gnash upon others with their teeth. When they had heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed upon him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen. He called upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We live in a world of persecution. We don't recognize it because we don't engage the gospel. You are persecuted. If you do the radical thing and if you live like the men that we're reading about, you will be persecuted. It's sure. It's absolute. It's what will happen. We don't talk about persecution very much, but some figures say that 25 to 30% of the world are right now living in restricted Christian places and endure laws that stifle them from worshiping. 25 to 30% of the world, world's Christians. Here's key point number five. Persecution can take many forms, but the persecuted believer, believer only takes one form. Persecution might look like someone making fun of you. If that's all it is, praise God for that. I have a friend that is a missionary in a place in the world where missionaries ought not go. In that place, a Christian man was killed by stepping on a political sign that was in the middle of the street that happened to have a Quranic verse on it. The, the police apprehended him, took him to the police station, and beat him to death. And their justification for it was, oh, well, he disrespected Allah. You tell me that persecution doesn't exist in the world. Just last week, at my job, I was told that I could no longer preach the gospel. I was pulled into the administrator's office, and he sat me down, and he very, very kindly asked me to stop talking about God in the class. And I very reasonably said to him, I'll do my best. <laughs> People that do God's work get persecuted for it. And listen to me, the persecution will take many, many forms. It'll take many forms. You'll see it all different ways, but listen to me. 
The one who is persecuted has one hope. Joyous living. A posture of worship. Staring longingly up into the face of the Son of God, willing to endure all things, and even willing to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just like Christ, Stephen says, lay this not to their charge. So in our invitation, we'll worship. I know we're over a little bit. But let's not let this go to waste. Let's not let God's word go to waste. Here's a question for you. Are you guilty of being religious? If so, it's time to pray. Are you struggling? Listen, are you struggling with compartmentalizing your Christian life? If so, it's time to pray. It's time to repent. Are you struggling with responding properly to the persecutions in your life? If so, it is time to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. We love your word. We're thankful for how it inspires us. We're thankful for its doctrines. We're thankful for the things that it teaches us and how it empowers us to live life in such a way that we might help deliver other people from their depravity and their lostness. We want to use it. We want to be used. Help us to source our identity in you and to give us a zealous heart for your gospel. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.